And now for something completely different. Forget everything you've been told by others before. Get ready for the real deal. The full story. Real talk about money, markets, life. Now, it's The Real Investment Show with Lance Roberts. Presented by RIA Advisors. And so this morning, it is Monday as we get ready really to wrap up the month here. Next Monday, of course, Memorial Day. Going to be a holiday-shortened week next week. So, again... This week is the last real full week of trading as we wrap up the month of May. Now that gets us into the month of June, which wraps up the end of the quarter. So hopefully we'll get a little bit better action in the markets here in the next few weeks. As, as things go on, we have now gone through eight negative weeks in a row on the Dow. That is like the worst stretch since the 1920s, right? I mean, that's been just a horrible period over the last two months. Every single week has been a negative week for eight weeks in a row on the Dow. Now, seven weeks in a row for the S&P. But nonetheless, I mean, a very, very tough stretch in the markets. Obviously, he's got a lot of people very concerned here. Uh, of course, Friday, markets sold off in the morning. In fact, we're selling off pretty hard in the morning. And the S&P actually crossed that 20% down barrier on the year-to-date basis, right? So from the year-to-date highs, Market was down 20% intraday on Friday. Now, the markets rallied back at the end of the day, and importantly, holding support from uh, where we were about a week or so ago. So those lows are still holding in here, but there for a moment, it was pretty close, right? Almost a bear market. Now, look, uh, a couple of things. First of all, is that yes, 20% down is terrible, but it's not a bear market. We're still in a correction mode, even at 20%, even at 25%, potentially even at 30% we're still gonna be in a correction. The reason is that we haven't broken the long-term uptrend of the markets really going all the way back to 2009. When we get back and start looking at the 2009 lows and, and going up here, we've got a long way to come down here before we even start talking about breaking this positive trend over this very long period of time. And again, this isn't really a surprise that we've got going on here with markets. Markets are so extremely deviated from long-term means that it would require a massive correction to get us back to breaking those long-term trend lines. And that was just because of all that liquidity we injected in the markets. Back in the 1980s, financial assets as a percentage of GDP was about two and a half percent. So, you know, but, but again, back in the early 80s, we were a manufacturing blue collar society. Most everybody went out to work. We didn't have this market that was just generating, you know, uh, you know, unicorns and dot com billionaires kind of left and right every time a company went public. So, you know, things were kind of more in a normal trend. Financial assets, about two and a half percent of GDP and, and kind of the world operated you know, fairly much without a lot of debt. We had no deficit to speak of economically. Today, after we began this massive financialization of the U.S. economy over the last 40 years, financial assets to GDP are about 6.3 times. Um, just a massive asset bubble that's been created. And this is just a function of all that liquidity, Federal Reserve interventions, easy access to credit, financialization of every type of asset class that you can think of. 
not surprising that we've had this massive surge of financial assets in the U.S. economy. Now, the, that's the good news. The bad news, of course, is that only the top 10% of the people own about 90% of those financial assets. So this is why we talk about wealth inequality and you know why, despite the fact markets are doing well, you know, over the course of the last decade, there's so many people unprepared for retirement. It's just because it's not a, you know, these this types of financialization is actually a wealth transfer mechanism that moves money from the working class, those that buy stuff, to the people that produce it, those in the upper end of the class. So that's just the way it works. But this is a problem that we're going to have to go through with the economy. And the thing, and this is really the big thing that the Federal Reserve, Federal Reserve is so afraid of, is the bursting of the bubble, right? You know, we talk about financial bubbles in history. We talk about the dot-com crisis. We talk about the financial crisis. We've got the mother of all bubbles that we're dealing with right now because we've got a bubble in debt, credit, equities, assets, real estate, you name it, there's a bubble in it at the moment. And this is because of just two decades, uh, ultimately now, of just all types of financial interventions, whether it was Alan Greenspan promoting subprime mortgages and adjustable rate mortgages to get more people to buy a house that led up to the financial crisis. Then we have Ben Bernanke with QE liquefying markets. And then Jerome Powell and, and Janet Yellen both you know, gladly picked up that torch as well. So here we are working through a very minor correction in this road to bubbleization that we have here. And, and again, everybody's very worried. It's like, is this, is this the crash? Well, you know, markets are hanging in here right now. Look, this has not been a year where things have gotten out of control. This has been a very orderly decline. If we take a look uh, as an example at volatility um, and, and take a look at the volatility index, which is a measure of fear in the markets, right? So this is just looking at how people are positioning. Are people expecting a crash? Are they not expecting a crash? Volatility has gone up here since the beginning of the year, yes, but it's not spiking higher. In fact, over the last two weeks, volatility has actually been declining here a bit. And that suggests that, that, that there is less fear in the markets, even though markets are on this brink of a bear market being down 20%. Volatility still continues to kind of come off here, suggesting that markets really aren't stressed in terms of thinking a crash is coming. So this is this is the dichotomy. People are afraid of the markets, absolutely, but they're really not doing much about it. And, you know, again, as we kind of watch this, this is the thing we want to pay attention to here because this is where now you start getting a lot of these headlines. Look, right now there are more articles. There's like 8,200 articles being written on the recession that's coming. If a recession started tomorrow, this would be the most well-forecasted recession in U.S. history. People don't generally expect or forecast recessions. They wake up to the realization of it after it happened. When everyone is expecting something to happen, something else tends to occur. Everybody's expecting the market to crash right now, at least from the sounds of the headlines, but that's exactly when the market does something different. Again, markets tend to move in the opposite direction of whatever the herd thinks because of how market psychology ultimately works. So again, everybody's expecting a recession. Everybody's expecting the market to fall apart. Everybody's expecting inflation just to continue to go higher. When everybody thinks that, you need to start acting a little bit more contrarian in your positioning and your thinking going, well, what if 
the majority of them are wrong because normally that is the case. And this is where, as investors, it becomes a bit more challenging here to try to go against the herd to do things because, as you know, we were saying, you know, that contrarian type investment strategy tends to work out over time because, because most of the time the herd mentality is wrong, particularly at peak turns of, of markets. And again, we have so many people expecting a recession. I'm not saying a recession isn't coming. It's pretty apparent that there's problems economically coming down the road, particularly with the Fed hiking rates and, and, and you know, tightening monetary policy. But see, there's the trigger. Everybody's expecting a recession because the Fed's about to do these things. What if they don't? What if the Fed doesn't hike rates as much as expected? What if the Fed reverses course fairly quickly and starts cutting rates and goes back to QE and, and not reducing their balance sheet? I'm not saying they are, but this is what we saw back in 2018. Markets were declining, nowhere near a neutral rate. In December, people are convinced a recession's coming and the Fed completely reverses course. So again, this is how markets tend to work. Markets tend to do the opposite of what you expect. So the whole point here, simply keep a focus on what's happening in the short term. Be careful about forecasting stuff down the road, particularly when everybody else thinks just like you. We'll be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Some people don't know about bonds. I am told this is a bond. I've never seen a bond before. I never owned a bond in my portfolio. It is terrifying. Get to know bonds in our next free Lunch and Learn. Thursday, June 2nd with Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and special guest Lance Roberts. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The thing about bonds with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. <laughs> just barely. I just want to know who decides to schedule high school graduations at 8 o'clock at night. Particularly when there's a thousand kids graduating. So on Friday, on Thursday night, my daughter graduated high school, so we went to her graduation. And then on Sunday night, and this is the other thing, right? Sunday night, my son graduates. And, you know... I don't understand. I mean, do these people not know I have to get up at four o'clock in the morning to come to a radio show? I mean, come on. So, but it, it was interesting to to watch. It's, you know, it's kind of an interesting transition when you're seeing your kids finally graduate high school and then you hand them the little, their, their little graduation card that says, congratulations, you're officially off the payroll. And <laughs> they look at you with this sheer moment of terror. But no, I'm just teasing. Um, it was a very interesting. Had a party for my son on Saturday and had friends over. So he brought one of his teachers over. So this is very interesting to me really? because, yeah, so both, so my son is, and I had no idea because, you know, my son's this, you know, 18 year old, you know, football playing, you know, kid. He's like the cool kid in class, blah, 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 right? He's a stud muffin. Well, yeah. And, but it was interesting because, 
he and they were, he's got this list of people he wants to invite over for high school graduation. And there's a lady on the list I don't recognize. And I'm like, who's this? He's like, oh, it's my favorite teacher. And I'm like, I never had that relationship with any of my <laughs> teachers growing up. But apparently, like, three times a day, he goes, hangs out in her class and him and a couple of buddies and her. They're like a super tight group of, of you know, student teachers. And, and they hang out and they talk a lot about life and stuff. And you know, and it was, it was just very interesting because she was very nice, and and uh, but she was very you know very fond of Tommy and and had a lot of great things to say about him, which always makes you feel good because you know like I've told you before, my kids are the Taliban, <laughs> and apparently they're only the Taliban at home because in public with other people, apparently my kids are very nice and polite and very helpful. Like he goes and buys her Starbucks and stuff when she's having a tough day. And this is great to hear as a parent, right? I'm very appreciative of this. And I'm like, well, why do you torture me when you're here? <laughs> so, can't, you know, can't we just have a happy medium? <laughs> just anyway. Anyway. Kids are out of school. Good for him. Congratulations yeah, so, to them both. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So now they're off to college. I've got one left, and mm-hmm. then I'm done. <laughs> so it's all good. Um, a couple of things. So just talking here a little bit about, you know, kind of financial markets, and everybody's expecting a recession right now. But, you know, also, too, right now we, we have the world's leaders now in Davos, doing their central planning of the world economy, kind of like pinky in the brain, right? How are we going to take over the world? This is what happens at Davos, the the meeting of the elite to drive the direction of the world and the, and the things that, you know, we're doing. And now remember, these are the people that are fronting the whole climate change thing, but they burn a bigger carbon footprint than just about everybody. You know, one of the big problems is uh, trying to get all their private jets to land in Davos and a string of limos to get them to where they're going, which are not electric-powered, by the way. So while they ensure that you need to be contributing to climate change and making sure you're doing all the right things climate change-wise and cutting back on your consumption of meat and cutting back on your consumption of electricity, uh, they're not. (laughs) In fact, they need you to cut back so they can consume more. Because that's the way this whole thing works. And if you haven't figured that out yet, you've got a lot more work to do. But this is what's going on in Davos right now. So, of course, we'll be hearing over the next over the next week, you know, we'll be getting the direction of where we need to be headed uh, economically on a global scale. But, uh, again, markets are beginning to do some of the work for the Federal Reserve. And this is... Kind of the, the key factor that we were talking about a minute ago is that everybody's expecting a recession right now. And, and again, I'm not saying that everybody's wrong. It would just be the first time in history that we have such a well-forecasted recession. Back in 2008, we were in the midst of a recession and everybody was like, oh, it's a soft landing. Everything's fine. And again, when everybody tends to expect something in the market, it tends not to actually occur as we expect, the, you know, as... As uh, Bob Farrell once said, he says, when all experts agree, something else is bound to happen. And that really kind of is a very true statement because markets have this very nasty tendency to do exactly the opposite of what you expect. You know, just about the time that you sell everything and go short the markets, that's probably about the time you're at the bottom of a market. That's just the way things work because we're emotional beings 
and we respond emotionally to events. And so that's why investors always tend to sell low and buy high. You know, when things are good, we can't wait to get in. When things are bad, we can't wait to get out. And it should be exactly the opposite. We should be, when we're sitting there looking around going, man, this is about as good as it can get. Maybe we should be thinking about selling some stuff, right? But you can't do that. And this is this is especially hard for financial advisors. Because even though, you know, individually I know that we should be selling the highs, I can't. Because again, if Mar if I start selling out of portfolios and markets keep running up and I have a big underperformance because, you know, I was selling as the market was rising, even though it's the right thing to do. We have what's called career risk, all financial advisors, because and since investors are emotional and they want to get all the upside they can get, they go, well, you're underperforming. I'm going to take money over here. I'm going to put it with this person or that person or whatever fund it is. So this this preclude and this is why so many financial advisors today just have given up on, on actually managing money. There used to be a day that, you know, pretty much everyone in the industry managed money, right? I mean, you know, we, we called them stockbrokers back then in the day. But the whole goal was to invest and to grow assets over time. And people made decisions based on fundamental data, but it's very difficult today. It's hard work to actually manage a portfolio. This is, this is why so many financial advisors have now bought into this idea of buy and hold investing. Because it's easy. I just stick your money into a bunch of indexed ETFs and you get market performance. So as long as markets are rising, everybody's happy. When markets decline, the answer is pretty simple. Yeah, you're down. So is the market. It'll come back. Nothing to worry about. Stick some more money in. But this isn't, that's not money management, right? I mean, so what are you really paying for? If... You just want to buy an index and ride the market up and down. That's that's great. The only thing you've got to be careful of is making sure that you're not starting your buy and hold journey at the peak of a market cycle. Now, if you can get valuations on the markets down to 10, 15 times earnings, somewhere around that range, on a trailing basis, not a forward basis, then sure, Absolutely. Put your money into an S&P 500 ETF and sit back and relax. Because if you're coming off of fairly low valuations, the odds are that your next decade to two are going to be fairly decent returns because you've just gone through a bear market. The problem is, is entering a buy and hold investment strategy at the peak of valuation cycles. That's where it becomes much more problematic. Good example of that was in 1999-2000 valuations were only slightly higher than where they are now on a trailing basis. And you spent the next uh, 15 years getting back to even. So buy and hold sounds great. It just doesn't really work that well if you're at the beginning of the wrong end of a cycle. So this is the thing to, to consider. But again, this is, this is, you know, the problems where we are in the markets. Yes, markets are down 20%-ish sitting right on the doorstep right now. And in fact, Friday, we actually kind of broke through that level and every, in the media headlines, S&P flirts with bear market. That's nerve-wracking, right? See, that's the type of, of thing that begins to make us start to 
rethink all of our strategies. You may be the most ardent buy and hold investor. And that's okay. There's nothing wrong with it, by the way. But you, there's a point to where everyone sells. There's a point where everyone sells. Everybody's point is a little bit different. But there's a point that no matter how ardent you are in your investment discipline, you'll be like, I got to get out. I cannot take any more losses because of the market. I cannot afford to lose any more money because of what's going on in the markets. That's, that's that point. And everybody has one. For some people, it's down 10%. For some people, it's down 20 Some people can go further. But there's a point, and this is why I always kind of chuckle when I see these investment risk profiles that people take. Because they always ask you the question, if the market's down 10% from the peak, what will you do? Will you buy more, hold, or will you sell, right? Well, if the market's down 20% from the peak, what will you do? Will you buy, hold, will you buy more, hold, or sell? And it's all great because when the markets are going up, people fill out these forms and they always answer, market's down 10%, what will you do? Oh, I'll buy more, right? Because we're in the middle of a bull market. So markets don't go down 10%, but when they do, that's a buying opportunity, right? What's always interesting is, is when that 10% actually comes, those very same people that were like, I'm going to buy more, you can't get them to buy more. In fact, you're doing all you can to keep them from selling everything and going to cash. Psychology is a very big problem for investors. And when markets are headlining like they are now, this is where we make those big mistakes. We've got to be careful of that. All right, come back from the break. Talk about the NABE, the National Association of Business. This is a, a survey that comes out about the economy. What are they saying about inflation and economic growth? We'll talk about that right after the break. Don't go away. Investment advice blog. It's required reading for the informed investor. Catch it today at realinvestmentadvice.com. Some people don't know about bonds. I am told this is a bond. I've never seen a bond before. I never owned a bond in my portfolio. It is terrifying. Get to know bonds in our next free Lunch and Learn. Thursday, June 2nd with Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and special guest Lance Roberts. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The thing about bonds with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. realinvestmentadvice.com. You're listening to The Real Investment Show. Welcome back to the show. So the uh, every quarter, a report is put out by NABE, 
which is the National Association of Business Economics. And what they do is they survey business owners and executives around the country, and they put together this kind of panel, and they do a survey. And the, and the latest one is out uh, for May of 2022. And it was interesting, some of the things they, they said. They said, NAB Outlook survey panelists continue to ratchet up their expectations for inflation in both 2022 and 23, 77% of the panelists indicate that the risk to U.S. economic growth are tilted to the downside this year with monetary policy missteps representing the greatest downside risk. More than half of respondents estimate the odds of a recession within the next 12 months are greater than 25%. So, you know, what, what's interesting here is a couple of things. So, first of all, they're expecting inflation to continue to remain hot. Now, you've got to be a little bit careful with these surveys because, again, business owners are not great survey panelists. They tend to report on what they see right here, right now, um, rather than kind of looking down the road and saying, this is probably what's going to happen because of, because of high prices. We're going to have slowing demand, and that's going to create inflation and they're worried about a recession which by its very nature is going to reduce inflation and there's what's called the bullwhip effect and i think this is very interesting the bullwhip effect and if you think about a bullwhip right so you know i take a bullwhip and i i whip it out there and it breaks the sound barrier there at the end of the of the tip and creates that loud crack and then it comes whirling back at me right and it all happens very quickly so what the bullwhip effect is when it comes into economics, and, and a great way to look at this is at inventories. So in 2020, we basically stopped producing everything because of the economic shutdown. And so inventories just collapsed. Just, I mean, just fell straight through the floor. So the bullwhip is, is whirling out, you know, in, in front of us. And Inventories are just collapsing. So naturally, with everybody now having a check in their hand, they go run out to Home Depot to buy everything to fix up their house and build their home office and, you know, everything that they're going to do. But there's nothing to supply. Good example was my wife decided she wanted to put a pool into our house, and this was in January of 2020. So everything's fine, right? Everything's completely fine in January of 2020. Nobody's even thinking about a pandemic, much less an economic shutdown. So the pool company comes out and they do their normal gig, right? They quote her a price for the pool and everybody's happy. She's happy. They're happy. They just sold another pool. Little did they know that they were dealing with the Roberts. I can assure you that when somebody says... We've done this a million times, and it always goes right. I will be the guy that it doesn't go right with. It's just that is the nature of the beast, right? So they contract a pool with my wife. They leave. They're happy. And, of course, they start building the pool, right? So they quote her. It's a fixed price. No cost plus adjustments. Just a fixed price. So... About a year and a half later, they finally finished the pool because they couldn't get any parts for it, right? They couldn't get the heater pumps. They couldn't get this. They couldn't get rebar, whatever it was. Couldn't get concrete at one point. So it took them forever. 
and costs are skyrocketing for them. So they build a pool. <laughs> they have to they have to regunite it twice. They had to replace the heater pump three times. <laughs> you know, it just just everything that could possibly go wrong with this pool went wrong, and it probably cost them north of two times of what they got paid for it to get this thing finished. And they were like very glad to get rid of us as a customer. Like, man, never do business with these people again. They're terrible. We were very nice the whole time. It's just we cost them a lot of money. But, you know, that's what happened at the time. Now, inventories at retailers are, are bullwhipping back in the other direction. We now have a massive supply glut of inventory at retailers. And that's what we just saw in two reports coming out of, of retail. Actually, three reports coming out of retailers. Ross Stores, Target, Walmart all said, look, inventory is a problem. Not a problem of not having enough. I got, my problem is I got too much inventory now, and I've got slowing demand. So revenues are dropping, inventories are building. So the bullwhip effect is that recoil of that action. And we've talked about this before. We wrote an article called Sugar Rush, talking about what happens in the economy when you have all this capital. So again, these business owners... Are, they're on this panel for, for NABE are looking at, and, and they're not looking at the consequence of this bullwhip effect in the market where we have this massive drawdown in production. Now we have this massive rebound in production. And that's going to lead to deflationary pressures, not inflationary pressure. So while they're expecting much higher rates of inflation through the rest of this year, probably not going to be the case. But we'll see. What was interesting, though, is that on top of this, they only think about, they only think there's about a 25% chance of recession. They think the economy will slow down, but there's a 75% chance the economy will avoid recession. But then they turn right around and say, you know, there's risk of monetary policy missteps. Well, if there's a monetary policy misstep, you're going to have a recession. You can't have a monetary policy misstep and not have a recession. It's just those two are going to go hand in hand because what that means is, is the Fed hiked rates too much. When they when the realization of the monetary policy misstep is the recession, it's like, whoop, you broke it. You went too far. If they hike rates and the economy only slows down a little bit and inflation comes down but stay, it keeps growing, then that wasn't a monetary policy misstep. That was you got it right for a change. Right, A misstep means you broke something. So if you think there's a monetary mis a policy misstep coming, it's not a 25% chance of recession. It's a 75 to 100% chance of recession. It's exactly the opposite. Because again, a misstep of policy means the Fed hiked rates and tightened monetary policy to the point it broke something economically. And here's the problem for the Fed. As we said before, the market's already doing the work for them. They've barely hiked rates. We're at 75 basis points on the overnight lending rate, and yet monetary policy in terms of economic policy, inflation, interest rates, economic growth, etc., those are already at levels that are normally consistent with a recession in terms of monetary tightening. So the, the market and the economy have already done a, a lot of the Fed's work for them. So it, whatever the Fed does from here is only compounding the tightening in the markets.
And that's the big risk for the market. That's the big risk for the economy. Now, again, is it possible the market could avoid a recession? Sure. Entirely possible the economy could avoid recession. Don't know how, but it's certainly possible. There's also enough backlog in the economy right now that the recession will likely not come as soon as everyone expects. Because, again, what we need here, see, everybody's currently expecting a recession. You, you take a look at a, a, a large majority of what's been being written lately, et cetera. Everybody's expecting a recession. When, and what will happen here is, is that this economy is going to kind of chug along a bit for the next quarter or two. Markets will start to rally because we're going to have a reflexive rally at the market at some point. And when that happens, everybody will back off this recession thing. Everybody will go, oh, we'll see. It's a soft landing now. The Fed's done it. The markets are rallying. The market's predicting a soft landing in the economy. We'll back off all this recession talk, and then the recession will happen. That reflexive rally will be what pulls people off of this, but yet the recession is still coming. It just hasn't gotten here yet, but we'll pull everybody off of this recessionary drag. That's what will set the economy up for that recession to occur. And that could happen in the next you know, two, three months. We'll see. The other interesting point they made was about labor. Talking about monthly non-farm payrolls in 2022 are forecasted to increase by an average of 363,000 up from 317,000 anticipated in February. Quarter median forecasts are, 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 have been moved up to the largest monthly employment gains going forward. More than half, 54% of panelists consider the potential for wage price spiral and a major risk to, as a major risk to growth in 2022. Um, if you take a look at the labor, what's going on with the labor markets, there's a real possibility that we're about to see labor markets almost shut down. And there's some good indications of that. Uh, Amazon just talked about the fact that they've got too much labor. Wages are beginning to impact corporate profits, and we're already starting to see wage wage increases peak. So again, you know, the, the NAIB survey is interesting only from the standpoint that it's something working in hindsight. But there's some economic data indicators out there right now that suggest that they may be a bit over-optimistic in their forecast. Be right back after the break. Get daily investment news you can use. Delivered at the speed of the internet at realinvestmentadvice.com. Some people don't know about bonds. I am told this is a bond. I've never seen a bond before. I never 
owned a bond in my portfolio. It is terrifying. Get to know bonds in our next free Lunch and Learn, Thursday, June 2nd with Richard Rosso, Danny Ratliff, and special guest Lance Roberts. Register now at realinvestmentadvice.com. The thing about bonds with Ratliff, Rosso, and Roberts. realinvestmentadvice.com. The Real Investment Show. You know, if it wasn't bad enough, now we've got monkeypox. <laughs> yeah. There's a there's a vaccine for that, by the way. So Of course. Yes. So we've got we've got vaccines for that. From like seventeen ninety or something yeah. that came out. I just don't know why we keep getting you know, it just it just goes to tell you something. There's something you know, uh, you know, God's trying to tell us something, right? It's like <laughs> you know, we've had famine, we've had fires, we've had earthquakes, plague, you mm-hmm. know. Maybe we should take a hint. You know, people need to go back to do you know, we have the lowest number of people that A have faith, a faith. Right, claim a faith of some sort, whether it's you know Judaism, Christianity, Muslim. You know, it doesn't matter. Right, just the, we have the fewest number of Americans right now claiming affiliation to some faith, and church participation has fallen to record lows. Nobody goes to church anymore, except for Brent. You go, of course. So it's two of us. And that's about all that's there on Sunday. <laughs> That's not true. But church participation has fallen off markedly, and the younger generation has even less faith. I mean, as, as you move through generations, as you go from baby boomers to, you know, Gen Xs, millennials, Gen Zs, et cetera, as you move down that list, the number of people both claiming an affiliation to a faith and going to church falls off markedly. And at the same time, you have a massive increase and pornography, right? So I don't know. Maybe God's trying to tell us something. He did it once before. Apparently, there's a book about it. If you haven't read it, there's a, a whole section in that book that goes through. <laughs> there were 10 of them. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Might just want to check it out. <laughs> there's a, there a, on TikTok, these two guys did a, uh, a whole piece on the Bible saying, you know, if the apostles had cell phones. Yes. Have you seen this? Yes. <laughs> and it's absolutely it's so well done. It is so well done. But they're they're basically it, it, they're basically going through phases of the Bible. And and we'll, we'll have to see if we can find a clip of that for the show because it, it really is well done. Uh, but they're basically like looking at Instagram or TikTok and talking about the other disciples and, and what's going on with the other disciples that they're posting apparently on their cell phones. So pretty funny stuff. I guess it's not funny if you haven't read the Bible, but, you know, <laughs> you know there's that. A lot of inside humor there. Yeah, it's lots of inside humor. Yeah. You, you have to, yeah, you have to know the Bible. Anyway, um, so this is, um, you know, kind of the the problem here as we go forward is that we've got a couple of things that are happening economically. Demographics are, are a big problem in the U.S. We have the lowest rate of birth right now that we've had since 1940 and the replacement rate in the economy. Now, this is, you know, 
one of the big fundamental issues that nobody wants to talk about. It's kind of the elephant in the room and everybody just ignores it is what's happening with Social Security, right? Because back when Social Security was started back in the 1930s, coming out of the Depression, there were 16 workers paying in to Social Security for every person taking out. Today, that number is less than two, and it's getting worse. So, you know, there's two ways to fix your problem, which, of course, is you need to increase your birth rate. That's one, because you need new people coming into the economy, into the labor force, working, paying taxes, et cetera, to support those at the upper end of the scale. And the problem is, is that we have this massive wave of millennials that are rapidly moving through the economy. And so as baby boomers are, are drawing on Social Security, the millennials, which are about the same size as the baby boomers, they're not paying in as much because wages haven't grown that much. So, and there's fewer of them to actually pay in. Today, we have about two people paying in to Social Security for every person taking out, right? So there's not enough money coming in for the number of people that are drawing on, on Social Security, and that, that's a long-term problem. That's why, you know, there's a lot of conversation about what do we need to do to fix Social Security because it's a funding problem. It's a, you know, it's pushing, you know, north of $100 trillion unfunded liabilities now. And so there's two ways to cure your problem. Either you've got to get your birth rate up. So you've got to encourage people to have children. Or you've got to have immigration. But you can't just open up borders and have unbridled immigration, right? You need immigration of individuals. And, and Donald Trump talked about this when he was president, saying we need merit-based immigration, which he's absolutely correct. Merit-based immigration is we want you in the United States. Please come. <clears throat> and merit-based immigration is things like you come here with cash, and start a business and within five years if you hire so many employees you start a business you hire so many employees you get your citizenship you come here with a higher education so you're a doctor you're a phd you've got master's degrees whatever it is in engineering sciences math whatever it is you come over here you work for five years you get your citizenship so merit-based immigration provides economically because it is generally an import of talent that is increasing the productivity of the economy, which leads to more jobs, leads to higher tax collection, right? And this is what it all comes down to, ultimately, is that you're trying to collect more taxes than you have money going out. And the problem with some of the, the unbridled immigration we have right now is a lot of these people are coming over. They're immediately beginning to draw on the social safety net, but they haven't contributed to it yet. And this is, this is the whole function we talked about as a good example, with the Affordable Care Act and why the Affordable Care Act wouldn't work. So when we first, when when it was first discussed, we were on the air back then saying we were interviewing all these doctors, right, saying this isn't going to work because one thing they did was as part of the Affordable Care Act is they said, oh well, minors can stay on their parents' insurance until they're 22. So that took payers off of the rolls, right? You need people paying into the insurance platform. So there's money there to pay out to people that make claims. And the other thing we did was is we put all these very sick people, people with pre-existing conditions, in the same pool as healthy people. 
So when you do that, immediately insurance premiums have to go up because if you have a pre-existing condition and you get thrown into a pool with healthy people, then immediately they're already drawing out of the pool. So it's just the actuarial problem of how money works over time and, and how much money you have in the pool to pay the claims. So if you put a whole bunch of people that are already drawing on claims inside of a pool that was intended to fund people later on down the road, you're going to go upside down. So you have to raise premiums, right? And that's what happened. I mean, it's not a surprise. It's just math. But this is a problem with the economy. You know, we want higher rates of economic growth. We want people to pay into the system. We want to have our social safety net. But the problem is, is that we've created this social safety net, which was originally intended just to fund people when they retire. And you weren't supposed to live that long, by the way. <laughs> you weren't supposed to live till 90 or 100. But then we started adding in all this other stuff, right? Every time we turn around, there's another tap on the on the Social Security system. You know, we're funding firefighters and healthcare workers and immigration and this and that and orphans and widows and everything else, right? And they're all and and when these when these rules were passed, it certainly sounded like a good idea. It's like, yeah, we need to help these people, so we'll let them have access to Social Security, and that's okay except for the fact that you don't have enough people paying in to support the people you already have, just retirees. Now you've added all these other people that are now drawing out of the system as well. But, but again, you know, nobody wants to touch that. That's the sacred cow, right? Don't touch Social Security. Don't mess with it, because if you do that, you're not going to get reelected. That's just... That's the, un, that's the unspoken rule in Washington. Everybody wants to talk about it when they're campaigning, right? We're going to fix Social Security. If you elect me, I will fix Social Security. I will ensure that you have your Social Security benefits. Just elect me to office, and I'll make sure this happens. How are you going to do that? I'll tell you when I get elected. And then when they get elected, you never hear about it again. Because, again, you won't get elected. That's, that's the bottom line. You can talk about it. Just don't really talk about it. Don't tell people how you're going to have to fix it. There's no desire to do it. People that are on Social Security says, don't take away my Social Security. The people that want to have Social Security are like, we need to fix it, but don't mess with my Social Security so nothing happens. You can fix it for everybody else but me. And so that's the issue. But this is, this is the thing we've got to start thinking about. Demographic trends have very major implications for long-term economic outcomes. There is, that's called demographics or destiny. We want to have higher rates of economic growth. We want to have better wealth equality across the economy. We want to have funded Social Security. We want to have all these things, but we can't because we don't have the population for it. And so this has consequences. So from an investing standpoint, this is something you have to factor into your long-term game plan about expectations. So if you're expecting 9, 10, 11, 12% growth rates out of your portfolio, markets simply won't support that. You know, when we talk about these average long-term rates of return going back to 1900, that has been skewed higher because of what happened in the economy. The growth in the economy in the last century has now become much slower rates of growth. So those average rates of return are going to start to fall over the next 30, 40 years. 
So if you're my age, 40 years from now, doesn't matter. But for younger people, it matters a lot. And it has a lot to do with what forward return expectations you look like in your portfolio and your expectations. All right, wraps up the show for the day. Be back tomorrow, of course. Tuesday will be technically speaking. We'll get into the markets. We'll see what the markets do today. Markets are slated to open up right now this morning. Bitcoin is up. That's a good proxy for risk assets. Suggests that markets should be a little bit stronger today. Got to hold on to those bottoms for yesterday. We can't open up today and sell right off into negative territory again. We've got to hold those lows from Friday. If we can do that, we got a shot here to get a little bit of a rally and we can rebalance risk. See you on tomorrow's edition of The Real Investment Show. I'm your host, Lance Roberts. See you then.